0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of schmersday Day, November 8th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill and special guest Drew Taylor discuss the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad that might have been. Let's get started by bringing in the man whose life, whose love, and whose lady is the sea. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: Oh! Oh, Brandy, you're a fine girl. <laughs> <Thank> wow. <you. laughs> okay. We'll all be singing that song for the rest of the day. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that song. It was number one back in March of 1972. and The very next week, it was replaced by Gilbert O'Sullivan's Alone Again Naturally. We really liked sad, sappy songs back in the Oof. 70s. Hey, Buzzkill, put it on. <laughs> the Social Security Agency reports that Brandy, as a baby name back in 1971, was 300. 300- 153rd on the list. By 1973, the following year after yeah. the song came out, it was 82. So, wow. you know, a lot of people, it's like, this is what I want for my child, for her to work in a bar and pine after a sailor who will want, want nothing <laughs> to do with her. You know, let's call her that. <laughs> I didn't do that, but that does show the power of popular music.
0: There you go. All right. And we've got a special guest on the show today. Drew Taylor is a reporter at The Rap. And has written stories for the New York Times and others, as well as hosting two podcasts, Late the Fuse, which covers the Mission Impossible franchise, and her own Fine Tuning with Jim Hill. Welcome to the show, Drew.
2: It is great to be here. I feel like I've been pestering you for years now. Finally, man, so. right?
0: Yeah, and finally the yeah. opportunity is right. That's great.
2: Yeah, I just want to make I want a soft commitment that I'll be brought back when when we finally do a. Uh, michael graves episode of the podcast Ooh. i want to be i want to come back and, okay. and weigh in on that okay oh, we're gonna have to All do right. something jim, i got it from jim okay, okay.
0: yeah now that the uh, the swan reserve is open it's time to go back and look at the uh the pinnacle of modernist architecture that is the swan
1: and dolphin
2: wasn't he involved with the whole sort of site planning for crescent lake jim
1: yeah, in fact, there's this weird window of time where they kept referring to where the dolphin and the swan and then the beach and the yacht club as the convention kingdom.
0: There's a selling phrase for you right there.
1: That's it, exactly. <laughs> it was just, but they were really, really pushing that because that was when Eisner and Wells came through the door. It was like we need to grab more of the convention businesses going to Orlando. Just so much of Crescent Lake was like, not so much where do the hotels go. It's like where does the giant Multi-purpose function room. Go. Multi-purpose function room. Just trips off the tongue, just like convention. Reminds me,
0: isn't um, isn't Disney referring to Kite Tales at the Animal Kingdom not as a show, but as a quote daytime activation? Oh. <laughs> You you got to wonder, right? Like are you are you just you just making words up. Anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. That. Okay. <laughs> Alright Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at disneydish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Lisa Klein, Hey Aaron, and Michaela 1989 and longtime subscribers and friends of the show, Ray Klass, Brian Hartnett, and Dana Rent. Jim, these are the skilled masons, electricians and plumbers who have just four and a half minutes to repair the theater between each showing of Muppet Vision 3D. They say while teamwork is always the key to success, don't underestimate what the world's largest tube of crazy glue can
1: accomplish. True story. Out of the entire Muppet Vision 3D, one of my favorite effects out of the whole thing is the arrow that sticks out of Waldorf and Sattler's balcony. If you hang in the theater long enough, you can watch during the reset. That arrow actually recedes into the balcony. Does it really? Yeah, for the next show. In fact, that's kind of the last thing that disappears. And in fact, really, if you can do it, it's worth it to hang in the doorway there to watch the theater repair itself, to watch all the, the holes in the wall suddenly disappear. And it's like, okay, ready for the next theater full of Muppet fans. So
0: Again, yeah, four and a half minutes, I'm just saying. There you go. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. And Jim, I am reminded that Mm -hmm. this coming weekend, November 14th, in fact, Mm -hmm. you and me Mm -hmm. doing a live show in Walt Disney World, courtesy of Storybook Destinations. If you're in Central Florida, folks, there are just a couple of tickets left. Visit storybookdestinations.com for details. Mm Mm-hmm. All right Jim, a couple of news items and Drew, you can weigh in on this too. Uh Disney's announced dates for club level lounges to reopen at some resorts. So the Yacht Club opens January 20th, speaking of Crescent Lake, Beach Club January 27th, 2022, and then the Polynesian Village Resort club level lounge, which is among my favorites, February 3rd, 2022.
1: Jim, what do you make of those dates? Kind of far off, aren't they? But at the same time, we're post holiday period and do we see a post-holiday sag in attendance at the, at the resort anymore?
0: Uh, I mean, with uh, with everything that's going on right now, it's it's difficult to predict that out.
1: <laughs> What's interesting to me is you see inside of two weeks, this amenity, this club level lounges reappearing at three of the resorts, and you know yep. the whole notion of okay, have this ready for when the February school vacation crew shows up. Right.
0: President's Day. Yeah. So it's a good point, actually. It is between the Marathon and Martin Luther King Day and President's Day. So they've got that little lull right there Uh where they can open things up without having humongous crowds at those clubs. That makes sense then. All right, Jim, I wanted to get your take on this and Drew, you can weigh in too. Um, Over at Tower of Terror at Disney's Hollywood Studios, there appears to be some unscheduled maintenance going on, Jim. Any idea what's going on there? Have they finally found the missing guests?
1: (laughs) No. What I have heard, and this has historically been a problem with the Tower of Terror, is that you have in the drop towers, so to speak, uh, Mm -hmm. you have the walls lined with plasterboard But after years and years of air pressure of the uh, vertical lift platforms, what will happen is that every so often they'll blow out a piece of plasterboard. And that happened just recently. And out of an abundance of caution, it's like, okay, shut this down. Let's just go up and down each of the drop towers and make sure that everything's fine because this is Florida and things get humid and plasterboard ages. But it's something that they're definitely doing out ahead of the full-on holiday crowds arriving. So nothing huge.
2: Well, when I heard that, I thought about Jim. Jim's reporting earlier about the longevity of those uh, motors uh-huh. and when they're going to have to just full on replace those things. So I was I was worried that it was it was like, oh, my God, these things are going now, early. We will definitely know when that's going on, when the giant crane
1: appears next to the oh, tower. Right. And that will be months, if not a year long operation to get those giant motors off. Because you have to take off the top of the building to get access to them, lift them out, and then bring in the new ones. So, yeah, wow. we'll know.
0: All right. Good for that. Uh, by the way, Jim, I was at um, was at the studios last weekend. Since I was hanging around all night mm-hmm. waiting for uh, my ride on Tower of Terror, I noticed the uh, the projection show that they're doing at night oh, on Tower the, right now. And
1: Beacon of Magic? Is that what they're Beacon called?
0: Beacon of Magic. There we go. And one of the details that I loved was this. You can only see it if you're standing at the Tower of Terror entrance. But if you look up mm-hmm. on the side of the building, at the very top, on the top story, there is a projection that occasionally shows uh, the silhouettes of people dancing mm. during the a ball or something that's happening mm-hmm. on the top floor. And the thing that I loved about it was it was a momentary thing but again, the only people who can see it are the people on the side of the building mm-hmm. by the Tower of Q who are looking up. And yet Disney decided to throw that in there. And it's a great touch mm-hmm. because it shows um, detail on all of the visible sides of the building, no matter where you're standing. So shout out to Disney and their projection team for getting that
1: uh, that little detail in. It was really good.
2: Isn't that the Tip Top Club, Jim?
1: There we go. Is it the Tip Top Club? Yeah, That's what the nightclub up there is supposedly called. Score one from Mr. Oh. Taylor.
0: All right. I have a, uh, I have, a, I have a T-shirt idea in mind. All right. Here we go.
1: <laughs> okay. All
0: right, Jim. Let's do a couple of surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, our friend Gene has sent one in. It's a survey about park cleanliness. And the questions go like this. Please rate the cleanliness of the Magic Kingdom on the date of your visit. So the options are excellent, very good, good, just okay, and poor. Uh, Gene uh, rated it as good. And the follow-up question is, what specifically? Uh, did you notice regarding cleanliness? The options that they gave were uh, trash on the ground and walkways. The stores were unorganized. The restrooms were not in working order. Trash on the ground in attraction lines. Paint chipping. Trash on floor in eating areas. Empty hand sanitizer stations. Restrooms dirty. Trash cans overflowing. Tabletops dirty. Trash in waterways and other. And Gene had uh, ticked the trash on ground, trash on ground in attraction lines. So walkways, attraction lines, trash on floor and eating areas, trash cans overflowing, tabletops dirty, and trash in waterways. So my guess, Jim, is that this is a uh, this is a question around how much more aggressive Disney needs to be in hiring more janitorial staff, given the labor shortages that are evident in uh in central florida
1: given what you and i saw when we were walking around the kingdom doing those live shows she's not wrong i mean you know the trash on the ground it seemed like at least on that day it was getting away from them yeah and again that was a busy weekend right it was so, it was
2: let's be fair yeah this was a couple days so i hope gene doesn't come out to disney <laughs> we have
0: <laughs> we have disneyland questions coming up oh, okay coming okay, up. okay. <laughs> okay. I remember in the winning days of the Eisner era, Mm -hmm. one of the big complaints that people had was that the parks were not clean. And I remember actually sitting on Splash Mountain, Mm -hmm. riding it a number of days in a row, Mm -hmm. and seeing the same Dasani water bottle in the same spot on the ride for multiple days. And that indicated to me, and I think, Jim, you and I talked about this Mm -hmm. way before the show even existed, that this was basically
1: evidence that nobody was walking the ride to see what was going on with it. And I wonder if this is the same thing. But Gene is describing stuff that's literally inside the park as opposed to, you know, a piece of trash that's inside of an attraction that would right. involve somebody that's true. walking around. So yeah, That's true. I, different different kind of problem, right? Something that's visible go. to everyone, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. All right. Our friend Steve Heinemann sent in a survey as well, and he had some uh, context around it. So here's the context that Steve provided. He writes in and says, my wife and I recently went on an impromptu trip to Universal Orlando and stayed at Aventura. But we really wanted to go to Walt Disney World. So before we went, we checked out the Disney World website, looking to put a package together like we've done so many times in the past. Last week, I got an email from Disney asking me to fill out a survey as to why we didn't book with them. So for reference listeners, Steve's budget for just this one trip was around $2,800. That means he's probably in the top 20% of American households by income. So he's in Disney's target demographic. Uh So the first question that Disney asked on the survey around why Steve didn't book a hotel stay gave these options. The prices weren't a good value for what you get. And that's what Steve selected Mm -hmm. prefer other hotel brands. Couldn't get adjoining or connecting rooms or multiple rooms located together. The prices I was quoted were just too expensive or I couldn't afford it. I had technical issues with the website. I couldn't get the discount I was requesting. The room rate I was willing to pay was not available for the resorts. I was interested in the specific dates weren't available. I got a better deal for other accommodations, also something Steve checked, mm-hmm. I prefer the homey feel and amenities of a rental home or a timeshare. There are limited character dining experiences available. The website was too confusing. The health and safety procedures or protocols, I wanted to be closer to a non-Disney park attraction, the specific room or view I requested was not available, my party size didn't fit in a single room, I didn't get enough information, I couldn't get my questions answered. And allowing Walt Disney World hotel guests early or late access to the theme parks was temporarily suspended. So that's a pretty large list of why didn't you book with us, eh, Jim?
1: I'm more intrigued by the notion that they were able to snag the information that he was looking but didn't come. Yeah. Yeah. I now grow concerned that, you know, as I make my travel plans, I'll look over the picture window and there's a mouse leaning up the window, looking in at me like, what are you doing? So I asked I asked Stephen about
0: this specifically, and he said he was logged into the My Disney Experience part of the site okay. when he was doing this. And that's how they know. That's how they know who's who. Okay. The thing I find interesting in this first question is there's something like five different ways Disney asked about affordability mm-hmm. out of that. So roughly a third of the options that Stephen was provided were related to cost. And then there were um, the next most common Set of questions dealt with benefits or amenities that you get as being from being a hotel guest.
1: Remember, on previous shows, we've talked about Disney's concern about the narrative that's now out there to the effect of how expensive it's become to go to Walt Disney World. And when you're asking that same question five different ways, you're like, what specifically? Set you off. It's interesting that you mentioned that because the follow-up question that Stephen got mm-hmm. was around that. So the
0: follow-up question that Stephen got after he answered, you know, cost mm-hmm. is the main reason was which of the following are reasons why you ended up not visiting Walt Disney World for the trip to Central Florida. So remember, Stephen stayed at Universal and only went to Universal theme parks. Mm-hmm. And of course, the first couple of options that Disney gives are a good deal is never offered to visit the Walt Disney World resorts. Mm-hmm. From your lips to God's ears, Stephen. <laughs> I can have a similar or better experience somewhere else for the same price or less. Those are the first two things that Steven suggested. Mm-hmm. I couldn't make it work to stay on site at a Disney hotel. That's uh, make it work is in quotes. And I won't visit until I can. The specific Disney resorts or room types I wanted weren't available. I couldn't get the information I wanted from a Disney travel agent online. Sorry, um, Disney telephone agent. Mm-hmm. Fastpass wasn't available. I can't afford to visit the Walt Disney World Resort. There's not enough new there, health and safety concerns, and I prefer to stay off-site. I decided not to take my kids out of school. I couldn't coordinate the travel schedules. We had saved for a Walt Disney World trip, but spent the money on something else. (laughs) I don't know when the best time to go is. It's too crowded. Other people in my household didn't want to go. Mm. I can't take that much time off of work, and I couldn't get the information that I was looking for on the website. So again, lots of lots of stuff here around cost and value. Wow. I've never seen these questions before. Drew, have you seen anything like this?
2: No, I've never seen anything like this, but it makes sense. I mean, I think. I mean, we're getting to Disneyland right now, yeah. but even the most ardent Disney fan like myself is just like, how how does anyone mm-hmm. afford to do any of this stuff anymore? Yeah. So
0: it's funny you mentioned that. I'm uh, I'm updating the my parts of the unofficial guide to the Disney cruise line and I'm looking at twenty twenty two cruise prices for Disney and Royal Caribbean because that's sort of the standard comparison that we do. Similar cruise lines Similar itineraries, similar ports, right? They're competitors for many itineraries. And so I was looking at four different uh, areas. I was looking at Bahamas trips, Western Caribbean, Alaska, and Europe. And the interesting thing about Disney is that for the they're, they're charging a premium uh, for their uh, Western Caribbean and European vacations. But for their Western Caribbean vacation, it's so expensive for a family of four to get a balcony room. That you could actually, same family of four, could actually get a balcony room on Royal for the Bahamas cruise, the Western Caribbean cruise, and the Alaska cruise for roughly the same price as one Disney cruise. So, you, the, so the, the question is, is would you rather go to the Bahamas, Western Caribbean, and Alaska on Royal or just Alaska on Disney?
1: Holy cow. Yeah.
0: So uh, 18 nights on Royal or seven nights on Disney. And the two prices together are within like $80 of each other. Oof. That's a lot. And especially on, you know, when you consider like the Wonder, Mm -hmm. which is Disney's Alaska ship is 22 years old, 23 years old. It's an old ship, Mm -hmm. right? So here's a, uh, Drew, you mentioned uh, a question about Disneyland. Here's a a survey question from Kara Firestone about technical issues she encountered while uh, visiting Disneyland. So the question is, which, if any, of the following technical issues did you experience while trying to use the Disneyland Resort app? And the options are... Issues linking reservations, tickets, credit cards, or photo pass. The app froze, crashed, or closed unexpectedly. There were connectivity issues with the Wi-Fi. Excessive spinner time or slow page loads. Connectivity issues with cellular networks. Error messages. Frequent logon requests. App caused excessive battery drain and other. And Kara had checked five things. (laughs) The app froze, crashed, or closed unexpectedly. There were issues with the Wi-Fi. Slow page loads, connectivity issues with the cellular network, and error messages, which, by the way, um, are all things we are also seeing in Walt Disney World, too.
1: I actually, at one point, got to interview the gentleman who did the upgrade of the connectivity stuff for the Magic Kingdom, at the very least. And it turns out he was a huge, huge Disney nerd. So it was one of these things where what should have been a week-long job turned into a four-week-long job because sure. he was doing it after hours and he was using it as an excuse to crawl around the inside of every single one of his favorite attractions. It's like, we got to put a transponder inside of the mansion. I'm sorry. And, you know, and it's a, <laughs> It might take me a while to find just the right place and ooh, the ballroom and ooh, the graveyard. But even with all of that work, they're still having issues. I'm taking these photos just
0: for documentation purposes <laughs> to show my, to show people later on where I'm putting all this equipment. That's entirely why it is. There you yeah. go. Sir, why do you need to be in the photos as well? Nah, never mind, never mind. It's
1: highly technical reasons. My good, close, personal friends, the hitchhiking ghosts.
2: Yeah, Disneyland is a mess right now, Lynn. I don't know how much of this you've been hearing about um, from from Guy or or other people, but
0: around the uh, the app or uh, technology in general. Just,
2: just general. I mean, the the whole magic the Magic Key situation, which we should you know save for another show. I think is just out of control, insane. But yeah, there there's a lot of the same like cleanliness issues. I I went to to. The uh, Oogie Boogie Bash a few weeks ago, and it was like there were trash cans overflowing in the parking lot, which is something that I've never seen outside of like Magic Mountain on a busy day. So it's a totally different sort of Disneyland experience these days. Wow. Um, yeah. So not not the best, but hmm. yeah, we can save that for another time.
0: We'll have to ask Guy about that. That's super interesting. Yeah. All right, Jim, we've got a couple of listener questions if we've got time. Sure. This was from uh, Dan Monville, who says, I was on a bus leaving Epcot. And saw a chain-linked fence in an area at the edge of the parking lot with a sign that said it was Project
1: Gamma. What is that? So, Jim, is Project Gamma the, uh, the festival center thing? We're talking early 2000s. There was the Project Gemini thing, and it was the early, early iteration of the notion of let's step away from future world. This is when they were going to lose the future world name entirely, and that was mm-hmm. when the front half of Epcot was going to become Discovery Land. Okay. They were going to swipe that name for, from Euro Disneyland, and this is when they were going to do things like put the Little Mermaid ride in and the, the Rainforest Coaster and all that. The chain link thing, the festival center, right now, given the current situation and given that the resort is still coming back, it's not a top priority. The project has been defunded. But at the same time, a Disney did make promises to a lot of corporations that are coming to Walt Disney World with their conventions and the previous places where you could do dessert parties and after-hour functions and that sort of thing just aren't great sightlines for harmonious. Right. We're gonna we're gonna talk about this in an upcoming live
0: show where you actually mapped out. Oh yeah. By the way, with a protractor, I think you brought an, <laughs> a, you brought a protractor with you to uh, to measure the angles. But uh, you walked around. World Showcase Lagoon, yeah.
1: and looked for the best vantage points for Harmonious, right? Yeah, and, and pretty much that's Ohio. you got to go way back. Gamma is what they're talking about with the Festival Center, and they are... Especially on the heels of, you know, we're now into our second, you know, starting our second month of Harmonious and Disney already has a pile of complaints from folks who bought special dessert parties and that sort of thing and could not see the Stargate. So it's sort of like, okay, all right. Just sort of kicking the tires of how much would this cost? How quickly could we get this built? And or could we build a second Stargate? Second Stargate. (laughs)
0: There we go. All right, here's a question from uh, Joseph Matt, longtime friend of the show, Mm -hmm. who says, on a recent show, you stated that the most recently built original concept universal attraction is Hollywood Rip Ride Rocket. That's true in the States, but the Lights Camera Action Show hosted by Steven Spielberg opened with the Universal Studios Singapore Park in 2011. So, Jim, is that the the most recent non-US?
1: I will have to take a poke at that. I mean, Singapore has some very interesting stuff let's put a pen in that and we'll circle back on that one but thank you joseph for bringing our attention to that also jim on last week's show we talked about how disney's updating its views of
0: space exploration mm. and that space tourism is a thing and we wondered about two things uh whether you could get satellite radio on board a rocket ship and what happens if you're in a car going nearly the speed of light and turn on your headlights in what should be described only as a complete lack of surprise <laughs> Our listeners actually know the answers to these questions. Wow. First up is an email from Melissa Irwin, who's a systems engineer for an aerospace company whose name rhymes with froing. Mm-hmm. Melissa says, Len, as long as you're in the serious satellite field of view, you should be able to receive satellite radio. The satellite is in a much higher orbit than commercialized space travel. I flight satellites for fun and get paid, so I know this. Thank you, Melissa. It mm-hmm. makes me sleep better at night knowing that I can be in orbit and still listen to the dulcet tones of Richard Blade on first wave on Sirius XM. Also from Brian Babcock, who writes in to say, if you're driving at the speed of light and you turn on your headlights, the headlights will work as they normally do. This is because the speed of light is constant for any inertial observer. And first of all, let me just say, inertial observer, i don't make me pull out the, the dictionary here, Brian. Anyway, <laughs> normally if you're standing next to a freeway and you see a car drive by at 60 miles an hour, it'll look like it's going 60 miles an hour. But if you're driving along the freeway at 40 miles an hour, and get passed by a car going 60 miles an hour, the car will appear to be going 20 miles an hour. This is possible because, as Einstein's theory of special relativity indicates, time slows down the faster you travel. That squishes everything along the axis of travel too, and that's the thing that makes light appear to move at the same speed relative to you. I note here, Jim, that Brian provided another example that involved more math and bigger numbers that became complicated once I made this morning's batch of mimosas. So what I got out of this is that Einstein showed speed is relative, and thus everything in the universe becomes morally permissible, and that's why we have people wearing socks with sandals. The universe makes the connections here, Jim. I just explained them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't come on this podcast to be <laughs> doing math, <laughs> okay? Hey. Wondering where you're going. I'm <laughs> jump in on that one.
1: Drew. Hang on. I'm just going to put down the whiteboard now. Okay. You were saying...
2: <laughs>
0: No, you laugh. I I
1: had to draw it out.
0: Okay. Because again,
1: remember, everything
0: is is relative, right? And there's Mm -hmm. no no fixed frame of reference on things. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, good times. Yeah. I'm waiting for uh, uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy to knock on my door because he's probably listening outside.
1: One can only hope.
0: All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and Drew tell us about the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad we might have gotten if the Lone Ranger film was a hit. We'll be right back. Today, November 8th, is apparently a significant date for Thrill Red fans because it was on this day 41 years ago that
1: the Walt Disney World version of Big Thunder Mountain first open to the public. Why don't you tell us about that? Not the first version of Big Thunder Mountain. That happened at Drew's home park, Disneyland Park in Anaheim, and that was 14 months earlier, back in September of 79. And there's also some controversy. Big Thunder, Walt Disney World, soft opened on the 8th, whereas if you wanted the big pop and circumstance thing, that was a week later on the 15th. That's when you got your banners, your balloons, your band. Looking back over the history of this ride. There's a lot of stories that Len and Drew and I could tell. One of my favorites dates back to five years ago. That's when a major medical journal, the Journal of American Osteopath Association, published its findings, which stated that if you were troubled, by kidney stones, and were willing to ride the Walt Disney World version of Big Thunder Mountain upwards of 20 times. Guess who did this 70% of the time, mind you, past kidney stones. I feel the need, Jim, to propose an insurance plan (laughs) Disney the Disney dish care package. But anyway, okay. This paper, by the way, was published back in October of 2016. Len, do you want to share the title? You're far better at pronouncing medical terminology than I am.
0: Sure. It's a validation of a functional pileocalcial renal model for the evaluation of renal calculi passage while riding a roller coaster. It's by Mark Mitchell and David Wardinger. I think I saw Bradley Cooper in
1: this off-Broadway, off, off Broadway too, Jim. I <laughs> was about to say, sounds like a page-turner. By the way, this team of medical professionals behind this paper actually did their due diligence. They, they also sent patients with kidney stones over to Tomorrowland to ride Space Mountain. Uh, likewise, they sent them to the studios to ride Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith. Repeated rides on those coasters didn't dislodge any kidney stones, though. Wow.
2: Can you imagine suffering from a kidney stone and having some wonk tell you to ride rock and roller coaster 20 times?
1: That's what i could I mean, could I mean, you imagine the legal paperwork that <laughs> went along with this? I've actually suffered from kidney stones. And it's one of these things, I could barely walk across the room, let alone, let me get on the ferry, let me go over to the Magic Kingdom, let me get online 20 multiple times. And then to add insult to injury, it turns out that your results varied on what row you sat in the train. I saw this, I actually read the paper. (laughs) This is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you were on the left or the right side, and it's just sort of like, oh
0: my God. And they said uh, the biggest effect was found from people who sat in
1: the back row, right? So I've heard. So I've heard. Yeah. So anyway, enough urinary tract related stories here, folks. Uh, Drew and I are here to talk about the time that Big Thunder Mountain almost became a TV series on ABC and then – Drew, he's going to talk about what potentially derailed that TV show. So anyway, it's nine years ago, fall of 2012. That fantasy adventure show, which featured characters from Disney's animated films, has debuted the previous season on ABC, October 2011, to be exact. Already a huge hit, almost as big as Lost, which had run on ABC from September 2004 through May of 2010. And executives at ABC are now thinking, well, Lost was popular, and What's About a Time is popular. And would it be possible to come up with a concept for a TV show that had Lost sort of overarching mystery with some supernatural elements, but also create a show that features some well-known Disney characters? And it's a It's then that someone in development at the network asked the crucial question, what if, instead of Disney characters, this new show for ABC was set in the world of a well-known Disney theme park attraction? So it was nine years ago this week, on November 13, 2012, that The Trades announced that Jason Fuchs, the writer of the screenplay of the fourth film in the Ice Age franchise, Continental Drift, And that he had been hired to write the pilot for a TV show that was to be called Big Thunder Mountain. Not only that, Chris Morgan, who has now written six of the Fast and Furious films, as well as one of the spinoffs, Hobbs and Shaw, he was attached to supervise and executive produce this prospective series for ABC. So they go off, they craft a script. The description of the pilot showed up in the trades in the late winter, early spring of 2013. And here's how it read. There's gold in the hills of Big Thunder Mountain, deep in the Wyoming Territory of 1890. Enough gold to make King Midas jealous. But there's something else in Big Thunder, too. Something otherworldly. Local legend holds that the mountain has been cursed by the Apache since the notorious mining accident at this western outpost some 30 years earlier. About as far away from the splendor of the Wild West as one can get, widower Dr. Grant Carson lives with his 17-year-old daughter Nora and young son Jack in the crowded Lower East Side of Manhattan. Son Jack suffers from a frightening respiratory illness for which Grant Carson is striving to find a cure. The family's life suddenly changes when Grant gets an offer to move to the mining town of Big Thunder because they need a doctor and are willing to pay any price. Lured by the promise of better life, the Carsons, accompanied by Grant's dead wife's sister, Lizzie, set out for a frontier adventure and meet the mysterious benefactor who brought them there, Abel White. He's the tycoon who founded his fortune on the riches that were hauled out of that mine that was dug deep down under the earth, uh, under Big Thunder Mountain. But there's something about this Eden on the edge of civilization and something about Abel White. Supernatural forces are at work, and Dr. Carson's son, Jack, seem to be a conduit for said forces. Together, the family will uncover the mysteries, dangers, and unspoken secrets of the haunted mountain, Big Thunder. Now, Drew, you were working as an entertainment writer during this period. You saw this project bubble up.
2: Yeah. I mean, the logline sounds a lot more like maybe the uh, Euro Disney version of Big Thunder than anything else.
1: Right? Very much. Very much so. What's weird is how things differ from the the different versions of the attraction. Like for example, It's only the Disneyland version and the Disneyland Paris version that featured the earthquake. If you were talking about the Walt Disney World version of Big Thunder, the sort of inciting event is supposed to be the flash flood that we have outside. Whereas what sends things over the edge for the Tokyo Disneyland version of Big Thunder is a tsunami. Had you ever heard that before? No. No. But I've I mean, it makes, sense, it makes sense locally though, right? No, 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 absolutely. But again, it's just sort of like, really, a tsunami. Okay. All right. So anyway, pitch ends with this statement. This exciting mystery adventure is loosely based on the Disneyland ride, Big Thunder Mountain. So executives at Disney or at ABC love the pilot script that fuch and Morgan put together. So January 2013, they green light production of this possible addition to the network's next season. But again, it's only the pilot. And Disney clearly wants Big Thunder to succeed. They hire Melissa Rosenberg, who is the writer of the Twilight Zone movie series, and they bring her Not on. Not the Twilight Zone, the Twilight movie series. Twilight, so, yeah. Twilight and Twilight Zone, Jim, two completely different <laughs> movies. Let me just... I'm pretty sure Twilight Zone had glittery werewolves, Len. <laughs> <laughs> I must have missed that episode, Jim. <laughs> it was the one where Rod Soling is wearing the sunglasses. Ooh, you're very glittery. Oof. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so they hire Melissa Rosenberg to be the showrunner for this mystery adventure show, and they cast great people. They've got Irish actor Ed McLean. He's from EastEnders. He plays, going to play Dr. Grant Carson. Pierce Gagnon, who had previously been on One Tree Hill, he gets cast as Dr. Carson's sickly son, Jack. This is the actual character description of Jack Carson that went out to casting directors. The role that Pierce Gagnon was going to play is Jack Carson, the terminally ill nephew of the show's central couple. He's sweet. But chafing under the constraints of his respiratory illness, Jack later seems to flourish once he's actually out in the Wild West. Soon a healthy, energetic child, Jack is also a talented artist who has been drawing what he sees in his dreams, curious yet ominous depictions of places and events in Big Thunder. So you got that sort of lost feel going on that there's a kid who's somehow connecting in with the, you know, whatever the forces are that going on within the mountain. Right. All of these these experienced professionals working on the project. And Melissa Rosenberg, again, our, our showrunner, it does an interview in early 2013, and she describes Big Thunder Mountain as a high-concept show that is really fun. The sort of TV series that, thanks to its setting in an 1890s mining town and then that the show has an element of magic and mystery to it, would have been the perfect thing for a family to sit down and watch together at 8 p.m. on a Sunday night. So pilot gets shot in March of 2013, shows edited together, temporary music, temporary effects to add it to that footage. So to give ABC executives of of what the finished product might look like. And May 13th, 2013 is announced in the trades that officials at ABC have passed on Big Thunder Mountain, that this series will not be part of the network's lineup for its 2013-2014 season. That was fast. So, if they they shot it in late March or early April, right, Mm
0: -hmm. then they had to edit it. I mean, I'm I'm guessing that Disney had to look at it in,
1: what, early May and then two weeks later? There we go. So, what happened here, Len? Did the pilot that Melissa Rosenberg put together ultimately not deliver on the promise of Big Thunder Mountain's premise? Perhaps, but in the days since... ABC executives have walked away from the show idea, I've heard that there may have been other factors involved with Disney's decision not to go forward with the Big Thunder Mountain TV show. And and one of these reasons reportedly was that Disney parks were looking to do something else with Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, which was they were looking to tie this thrill ride in with the Lone Ranger, which also came out in 2013.
2: First of all, if anyone wants to read this story, please tweet at Vulture because I I turned in this story in July and it is still not run. So I, I have no qualms about giving a little peek inside this this longer article. But there was an idea that dates back I think to 2009 or 2010 mm-hmm. about folding in these Lone Ranger characters into the park, and there were a bunch of different proposals. Uh, I'm looking now at at a sort of pitch rough pitch deck and. Everything from an all-new e-ticket attraction using the festival area, Big Thunder Ranch and Circle D Ranch area, so what would eventually become Galaxy's Edge, all the way down to, like, a Streetmosphere show in the streets of Frontierland. That is sort of pinging off the old, was it Zoro gym that they would do on the rooftops?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, remember, Drew's talking about this, you know, initially being pitched in 2009. And one of the things that put gas in the tank for this idea was what happened in July of 2006, which was when, just as the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie, Dead Man's Chest, was arriving in theaters, that's when. You could go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland Park and Walt Disney World version of the Magic Kingdom and see animatronic versions of Jack Sparrow and Captain Barbosa. And if you put on your, your touring plans, Hatland, there was a noticeable jump in in like the wait time for Pirates during this period, right? Because people were, you know, ooh, I have to see the characters from the Pirates movies. So what had already been a popular attraction became a super
2: popular attraction.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of a blip there, yeah. Okay. So we had the everything from the e-ticket attraction to the street show, so to speak.
2: Right. But, you know, the most likely, obviously, uh, implementation of this was going to be a overlay of Big Thunder Mountain with the Lone Ranger characters, including several characters that appeared in an original draft by Ted Elliott mm-hmm. and Terry Ruscio that didn't make it into the final movie. And also... There's this amazing scene in that original script where there's a kind of ghost town and there's a guy sort of nervously playing the piano to kind of stave off these sort of supernatural coyotes. And that scene was actually going to be... It's it's wild, uh, Len. If you ever want to take a read, let me know. I would <laughs>
0: love to see this. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay,
2: but yeah, but there was they were going to stage that scene in the little frontier town as you're exiting the uh, attraction. But you know, the big the big get and the thing that would have benefited us even now was that they were going to introduce onboard audio. Because you were going to actually listen to the William Tell Overture, I think it started on the first lift hill, and I talked to an Imagineer who was sort of noodling around on this, and he said it timed perfectly. Did it really? And it was yeah, and it was and it was and it was a way to get that onboard audio on there so that after the Lone Ranger um, overlay had kind of run its course, that you could put a new original score to Big Thunder Mountain, yeah. which it's never had in there.
0: Yeah, you could do effects. You could do a ton of stuff with audio onboard audio, yeah.
2: Yeah. And and you know, there was there was gonna be cool new sort of show scenes. Jim, Jim's read the script, Jim, you know the the ending with the there's a sort of train chase inside a mountain. Oh yeah. And they were gonna have that they were gonna have the train engine in the middle of that. Wow. You know, when you're going up that first lift hill and, and all sorts of things. And You know, the other cool idea that I really love and wish they had implemented was that it was going to it was going to totally take over Frontierland. Right. Jim, like you were going to have like arrows in the posts when you're walking through Frontierland and fire. Things would be on fire and there would be all these wanted posters and there would be wanted posters not just for Lone Ranger, Mm -hmm. but for other sort of mythological Old West Mm -hmm. characters, which was was tying into an idea that Tony Baxter had to redo the rivers of America to actually have a story that would go through the great myths of the, you know, American West. West. Yeah. 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 So
0: that's a great idea.
2: One of the
1: reasons that Disney was so high on this idea is if you just look at the credits for The Lone Ranger, this is literally we're getting the band back together for the Pirates of the Caribbean series. You got director Gore Verbinski, you got producer Jerry Bruckheimer, and you already mentioned the screenwriters, Ted, Ted Elliott and Terry Russo. But it was also composer Hans Zimmer, and again, of course, Johnny Depp back as Tonto. And on paper, this seemed like it could not lose. So the studio puts, well, it was either... Two hundred and twenty five million dollars or two hundred and fifty million dollars into the production and Wow.
2: Yeah, they wanted it they wanted it at two twenty five. They greenlit it at two twenty five and it wound up being two fifty anyways.
1: <laughs> yeah. If you actually dig down into the trades, it was this kind of embarrassing period where Disney actually put production of pirates on hold. This was when Rich Ross was in charge of the studio, right?
2: Yeah. Alan Horn took over during production, I think. Yeah. Or Right after production. Yeah, but but Rich
1: Ross was like, no, we can't spend that much money. And and so for three months, they they sort of crept the budget in and then, okay, it's back up and running again. But... The downside of it is it's it's released to theaters July 3rd of 2013 and seriously underperforms at the box office. So this vivinsky movie only sells 89 million worth of tickets in North America. Oof. Another 171 overseas. So that means its box office total is 260. That means Len it barely covers its production cost let alone promotion. Disney doesn't like making theme park attractions about movies that don't make money. So to all of this wonderful, these Lone Ranger ideas, the stuff that Drew was talking about, or the arrows and posts and wanted posters, it just falls off the table. And maybe it was a, a good thing that the Imagineers didn't get to add this Lone Ranger stuff to Big Thunder, kind right. of in the same way that Johnny Depp's troubles right now have kind of made, you know, it, they've stalled out the studio's efforts to continue the Pirates of the, the Caribbean film franchise. And right, and Army Hammers issues. Uh, the, he's the the handsome actor who played the title role in a Disney's Lone Ranger. Uh, you know, he's t- also had his own spat of bad publicity lately, and which might have led to some interesting conversations. You know, kids asking their parents as they're, they're walking out of the thrill ride. It's like, Dad, wasn't that a-, a figure of the guy who said he was hundred percent cannibal and who said <laughs> he was going to eat his girlfriend? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and mom would say, oh, Don't bother your father. You know, he's suffering from kidney stones. (laughs) let him run again son let him run again there you go one final thought later this week the mouse will be celebrating Disney Plus Day that's November 12th the second anniversary of the launch of Disney's subscription streaming service okay this is when the company will be talking up all of the new films TV shows and limited series will be showing up On that subscription streaming service over the coming year and say, Len, wouldn't it be cool as part of that presentation if Disney Plus officials mentioned that, oh, by the way, we've unearthed the pilot of ABC's Big Thunder Mountain and we're making this TV show available for viewing for Disney Plus subscribers. I mean, mean, a guy can dream. I would love to see that pilot because it sounds like a good show. It does. It does. But if you, you factor in. What Drew just shared with us and, you know, the whole notion of if you're somebody up in the corner office in Burbank and you're looking, at, okay, you know, this is the way we want to go with the T, you know, with a big Thunder Mountain TV show. But this is also what the Imagineers are proposing doing with Lone Ranger, which potentially is something I could take to parks. Because, because remember, we, we have no less than four big thunders around the world. You got Paris, you got Tokyo, you got Walt Disney you got Disneyland. This Lone Ranger redo could have traveled the world if the movie had been successful and been yeah, and slightly and slightly adapted for each of the
0: uh, each of the different markets. Yeah,
2: there we go. But Drew, you like this movie, right? I love this movie, and Jim, you know, you're you're discounting the fact that there is a a sort of Magic Kingdom universe show in development for Disney Plus. So while we might not see the pilot, and I know what's coming on Disney Plus Day, and I'm sorry to tell you, Jim, your your dreams have been dashed. Oh but, man. Uh, <laughs> we could get something from this new Ron Moore show mm-hmm. um, that is supposedly coming okay. soon. Well, so. I right,
1: Let's go with that. Silver lining. Silver lining. Silver lining. But thank you so much for sharing that info, Drew. And more to the point, folks, send emails to Vulture now, because seriously, I have had a chance to preview the story about the Lone Ranger. It's killer. You really want to read it. I do not understand why they have not posted it yet. Is it uh, true? Are they at Vulture on uh, Twitter?
2: Yeah, I think they're just at Vulture. And also, if you want to read my story about the Rocketeer, the making of the Rocketeers animated Nazi sequence, <laughs> which is another Vulture <laughs> piece I have turned in and is absolutely fabulous. Jim can attest to this yeah, as well. Yeah. As long
1: as we're plugging things, can we also plug your amazing Runaway Bray thing that ran last week?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, that yeah.
1: was great. The Oracle and Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yes. Jim.
2: I'll send you, Lynn, I'll send you the version that has three thousand more words, and you can really get a picture of uh, the making of Runaway Brain.
1: This is one of the reasons that Drew and I get along so well. We we know no short stories. The only thing is that Drew, because he gets published, things published by actual professional, real people. They they, they occasionally edit it with a machete. <laughs> yeah,
0: I read the uh, I read the piece on uh, Runaway Brain. It was uh, it was fascinating to hear like how far how far out. The animators had gone on that, and then they had to be reined back in, uh, but yeah. but, it, but it ultimately ended up in a worse a worse product than had they just been left alone.
2: Yeah, and and so many it was so funny on Twitter because so many people thought they had dreamed the short, you know. That, <laughs> no, I, saw, I, saw, <laughs> it yeah. I saw it in theaters. I saw it in theaters.
1: there's so many in that article that they, they talk about the what might have been. I mean, it would have been yeah. a worth it alone to have Mickey playing the Bambi's mother shooter game, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. That never would have made it out of a uh, oh out no, of collection, no, but, but, but God just there we can go. imagine what those
0: what those animation cells oh, would sell for. Yeah. Pay for everyone's college tuition, right? All right. All right, but we have to stop here. Yep. Folks, that's gonna do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. We'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including live shows Jim and I have just recorded in all four Walt Disney World theme parks. On next week's show, it's the anniversary of the opening of the Villas. At Disney's Wilderness Lodge and Jim gives us all the details. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me Len at touringplans.com. Drew, where can people find more of you?
2: Well, you can find me every day writing stories for the rap.com. and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drew Tailored, like a tailored shirt. Len, I don't think you follow me on Twitter yet, so that's my big—that's uh, my big goal. <sighs> Jilting me
0: on the show, aren't you? <laughs> I'm listen. Right. It's the
2: only way to get results around <laughs> here. Sure you know I mean? is actually.
0: All right, working on that now. Working on that now. As mm-hmm. I'm done here. <laughs> and we're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be serving up T.O. Adams Cuban inspired country fried steak with green beans, smashed potatoes and gravy, and Aaron's own world-famous fried cornbread at the Bradley's 50th almost annual Fun Day on Saturday, November 20th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Bradley's Country Store just off Centerville Road in the beautiful suburbs of Tallahassee, Florida. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and Raider show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.